Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. How does Joe Biden compare to previous US presidents? Has his one year in office been historic or mundane? To discuss the past, present and future of American politics, I'm joined by the historian and classicist Victor Davis Hansen of the Hoover Institution. I started our discussion by asking Victor how optimistic he is about the future of America. Guardedly optimistic because the fundamental institutions, while they're taxed and they're strained and stressed, they haven't broken yet. So we're the longest surviving democracy in the world. And we're the only constitution that favors a two-party system that's brought stability, more or less. And if you look at the ingredients of a civilization throughout history, there's only about six or seven things that matter. One of them is, do they have sufficient food supplies? We're the largest producer of food. If you take away China, and that's their data is inexact. We were the largest producer of fuel. I think we have the ability to do that in short order. Largest producer of natural gas. Second largest of coal, but largest of oil. Your own Times Education a supplement not long ago rated the top, I think, 20 universities in the world. The United States was on, I think, 15 of them. And that was largely not on the basis, obviously, of our English department, our law schools, but on tech, uh, business, medicine, things that counted. I still think, even after the disaster in Afghanistan, we still have the most adept military so in looking economics, we all talk about China, even if it were to surpass our GDP in four or five years, they have about four times the population, more than that. So on a rough scale, one American is producing about the number of goods and services as four Chinese counterparts. The essentials are good, but we are in one of these Civil War, 1960s, Great Depression valleys in which the country is divided and... Uh, People are trying to destroy the system that gave them their affluence and prosperity, whether that's the 180-year filibuster or the 233-year-old electoral college or the 60-year 50-state union or the 150-year nine-person Supreme Court or the constitutional idea that the states have primary responsibility for setting voting law. All of those are under assault now because they have not 
given the social, neo-socialist Jacobin movement the results that they want. Let's talk about the man who is allegedly t- attempting to heal the divisions in America, Joe Biden. He ran on an election campaign of supposedly, as I say, trying to heal those divisions. How would you rate him in terms of the history of presidents in America so far? We've had moments where a president was so enfeebled that people, we've never had a president resign for health reasons. So presidents, except in the case of Richard Nixon's, do not resign. They cling desperately. So we're not going to see any president resign. Nixon only resigned because he felt that he was going to be not just impeached, but convicted in the Senate. And nobody had ever had that happen. And nobody's ever had it happen today. So his advisor said to him, you will be the first person convicted in the Senate. So he resigned. So Biden is not going to resign, but we've had cases such as Grover Cleveland for a little bit, but mostly Woodrow Wilson comes to mind, where he was so enfeebled, he was just comatose nearly. And that's, I think we're getting to the point where Joe Biden is not able to go out and work an eight-hour day like most people. And most people, 78, have some problems with that. All discussions of Joe Biden hinge on the fact that he's not the Joe Biden that he was 20 years ago. So what I think most of us feel in America now is that he did a Faustian bargain with the left, that he was a veneer of, I don't know, respectable moderation, and he carried the progressive agenda across the finish line, and then the progressives felt that his task was done, and he should sort of recede into the shadows or just sort of mouth their shibboleths. And that's where we are now. He's the most radical president that we've had, I think, in our history, more so than FDR. FDR, the New Deal, he he tried to pack the court. He did all of those things, but he didn't do it. The war came and he tried to be inclusive. But Joe Biden on every aspect, whether it's his appointments, his judicial appointments, the open border with two million people, the skedaddle from Afghanistan, the deliberate printing of money, a $2 trillion deficit, $30 trillion national debt, the mandates, all of that is is new. It's a level of radicalism we haven't seen in a long time. I don't think we've seen it from a president. So as a conservative, therefore, is this the worst president, at least in your lifetime? It's hard to make an assessment after 11 months, but certainly if you look at issues, about eight or nine issues, this president took the largest oil and gas producer in the world that was completely immune from Middle East pressures and had really given multi-billion dollar subsidies to the commuting middle class by lower energy price. He took that and he blew it up. We're producing two to three million barrels less. We're jawboning natural gas producers to produce less. We're subsidizing wind and solar as we've never done. And the result is that I just filled up the other day and gasoline is about double what it was under Donald Trump and natural gas is more than doubled. And that's taken an enormous hit. And so when you look at inflation, we have not had in 40 years six and a half percent annualized rate as we finish December and it's going to go up. We've never had in our memory supply chains disruptions. Uh, I flew over the port of LA yesterday and last month on a commercial flight. I've never seen anything like ships out on the horizon without absolute presidential inaction about that. We've never had two million people cross the border in one year. We've never had a defeat like Afghanistan. We had something like it in 1975 in Saigon, 
But that was a long, slow process, and we didn't leave 80, the equivalent of $80 billion in the hands of terrorists, a billion-dollar embassy, and $300 million refit of Bagram Air Base. So I could go on, but you get the picture. So by these rubrics, it's hard to find anybody who's done a worse job in the first 11 months. What about this central task of his to unite America and heal those divisions that seem so ugly during the last decade? Joe Biden does not want to unite America. The left does not want to unite America because they're not Democrats, they're not liberals, they're not even progressives now. They are hardcore radicals, and they believe that their agenda will never get 50% support of the American people. And therefore, they have two or three options in which they're choosing all of them at once. One is to change the system that I just mentioned, the institutional system, how people gain power, the new voting laws or changing the electoral. The other is to change the constituency, bring in two million people a year from impoverished countries with no high school diploma, no marketable skills, and offer them immediate federal assistance, and then grant them amnesties to vote. We're seeing 800,000 illegal aliens probably vote in New York local elections. So they want to change that demography, and they want to change the system, and they want to use institutions that were nominally neutral. I'm talking about the FBI, the CIA, the Pentagon, the IRS, DOJ. Each party tried to politicize them, but they were, they had credibility. Now with when we look at a John Brennan, what he did, or a James Clapper, or the retired military, or a Mark Milley in the Pentagon, or what the IRS does, or what the DOJ did, they are now active participants in whether it's climate change or transsexual, transgendered operations, or they, women in combat, pregnant women as Air Force. They have a social agenda. And then finally... They believe they do not need the majority of Americans to enact this transition to a radical socialist democracy from a constitutional republic because all the methods that we in the Western world use to communicate and disseminate information, Google searches, Facebook, Twitter, email, they feel they can control it and they can censor and adjudicate who gets to participate the order of a Google search to reflect certain agendas. And that is force multiplied when you look at professional sports, Hollywood entertainment, K through 12, academia, Wall Street, the corporate boardroom foundations, and the print and traditional media. They feel they have all of these levers and they can manipulate public opinion or they can gain power through them. And they really don't like democracy or democracy in the sense of people being able to vote on referenda. Notice that They told us when Joe Biden won that this was a referendum on the beauty and strength of democracy. And then when his polls crashed in August after Afghanistan, they've never recovered. We're told in 2020, democracy is broken. Or in 2024, there may be a coup. Or we have to be careful. In other words, they've never liked the people. They only consider democracy useful when it promotes their agenda. And that agenda is usually only reified when there's a sense of crisis, COVID, Donald Trump, something like that, 2008 meltdown. That's how they come to power. There's so much to unpack there, and we will do so throughout this interview. The first thing I want to to mention is American's foreign policy. You talked about Afghanistan, the withdrawal from that, obviously was seen as a huge disaster. 
Joe Biden ran on a record of, or ran on a platform, sorry, of wanting to restore America's image abroad. He said America is coming back, America is back. He saw Donald Trump as a sort of crude, ignorant person who went around annoying and angering our allies. Do you think that America has restored its reputation abroad with Biden's presidency? Yeah, I do. And in ways that Joe Biden were, he and the opposition now, and younger and more hale, would absolutely agree with. We convinced our European and British allies to go into, say, Afghanistan, and they were there for nearly 20 years. And they suffered enormous cost casualties, not as much as ours, but, you know, they attacked us and not the Europeans or the British, but they came. And so when we decided under Joe Biden that we were going to get rid of the 3,500 Americans and the project was no more viable, then the first obligation would have been to go to our NATO allies and say, look, we're going to withdraw, but we came here first and we're going to withdraw last. And we suggest that we do this in concert. Instead, we just skedaddled and we left all of our allies to fend as they could. And then when we had this two-year Russian collusion hoax. First of all, we lost the Russians as autocratic and untrustworthy as they are and vicious. We usually, in a real politic fashion, balance them off with the Chinese. And I think Henry Kissinger said, neither one should be a better friend to each other than they are to us. Well, we alienated. We first appeased Putin under Biden with reset. I mean, excuse me, with Obama under reset. And then we came back and we demonized them under Russian collusion. And the point is that we have an active enemy now. And that's okay because Putin is no friend of anybody's. But if you're going to polarize and have an active enemy and demonize them, then you talk loudly with a twig and you're in trouble. And that's what we're doing. So we're the NATO alliance, especially the Eastern Europeans and the Baltic states, no longer believe that the NATO alliance or the quasi-NATO alliance or being a border member of a NATO alliance part means anything. And I think Germany is another good example that is no longer fully a Western power anymore in the traditional post-war sense. So, yeah, I think Donald Trump, for all of the criticism he endured, he did create a consortium in the Pacific and Asia of Australia, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, the Philippines that were beginning to try to contain this new greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere under Chinese auspices. But the Europeans and the Westerners got what they wanted because they were even more fiercely anti-Trump than were the American left or the American never Trump right. They wanted what they got. And a lot of us warned them that if you just ignored Trump's rhetoric and look what he actually had done. He had increased NATO expenditures by 100 million military budgeting, and he had been very strong with Putin. He had sold the Ukrainians offensive weapons. He had upped sanctions on the Russians. He flooded the world with cheap oil that the Russians hated. He killed 200 mercenaries in Syria that tried to attack a U.S. installation. He got out of an asymmetrical missile deal. So some of us were thinking, you know, he's so, trying so hard to show that he's not pro-Putin that Trump's policies were actually one of the most anti-Russian policies we'd seen. And now we're back to the reset appeasement. More broadly, is the American empire dying? It's hard to say. I think what's happening is under George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and Barack Obama, 
there was this American-led Western effort to say that China, and we had a lot of goodwill toward pre-Maoist China because of the American relationship with China and the World War II experience with China. We said the more that we are magnanimous to China as it sheds its exoskeleton of communism and fully emerges as a capitalist country, they will reciprocate that magnanimity with gratitude and they will become a member of the Western democratic community. And this is going to be wonderful. They're going to be follow a trajectory like India, for example. And the fact of the matter is they were communist and they never renounced communists. They were proud of it. And communists looked at magnanimity as weakness to be exploited, not as kindness to be reciprocated. And so that started this empowering China. And so all during the 90s and 2000s, when you found a professor of computer science that was working for the Chinese, when you saw a CAI operative, when you found students that had a cabal that were sending stuff back to China, when China was dumping, when they were stealing patents, when they were stealing copyrights, when they were manipulating their currency. Here in the United States, it was, well, we're so strong and we're so powerful. We wouldn't want to be racist or xenophobes and attack the Chinese. And then Wuhan came along and you can you can see how ill-prepared we were to deal with the Chinese. And now we're in a very ridiculous situation of finally waking up and saying, we're not going to let, while we do this, or we're going to have tariffs and the Chinese are thinking... <laughs> we've got a bigger, we're going to have a bigger economy and we're ahead of you in so many areas in technology and, and fabrication and assembly and production. We just need a few more years with you and then we're done with you. And so we're, that's what's worrisome, that we're not as powerful as we were. And at some point, we're going to be a country that's very powerful with 330 million people, and but we're not going to run the world as we did in the post-war era. And a lot of people on the right and left don't mind that. I'm not sure that I mind that either, but it's going to happen. And the, the enemy of America right now is not poverty or want. It's a bi-coastal culture of affluence and leisure. And we have staggering amounts of asymmetrical wealth in the, the two coastal areas. So when you have Silicon Valley with a 10-square-mile area that has 5 to $6 trillion of market capitalization then that money is very powerful. It can go into a campaign as it did in 2020, $400 million plus into getting precincts to vote particular ways. So our problem is that we've got a very, very globalist cosmopolitan population, one with windows on the EU, one with windows here on the in the West with Asia, and they do not believe in traditional American values as we've known them, our patriotism, our nationalism. They feel they're citizens of the world. Tony Blinken, remember, two months ago said he wanted to invite the, the UN and to adjudicate whether the United States was racist or not, and things like that. Or the International Criminal Court should be welcomed in to discover whether Americans had committed atrocities. And when we talk about the international community at the UN, we're talking in some cases Iran, North Korea, Nicaragua, Cuba, the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, China, etc., etc., well, I challenge anyone to name a country that hasn't tr- committed atrocities in its past. You've described recently the, the Democrats as revolutionaries. Why would they want a revolution if they control every single institution or major institution in America? Well, I've never known any revolutionary who said, we won, it's now time to stop. The revolution, by definition, on the left is defined as 
today's revolutionary is tomorrow's counter-revolutionary. So I guess what I'm saying is that it's inherent for revolutionaries to want more revolution and to get more and more radical. And they do control the institutions and they do control, at times, the government, but they don't have the majority of the American people. And so now they're 50-50, even with all the terrible things that happened to Trump, the hoax, the impeachments, the January, they still couldn't get more than 50 senators. And they have a narrow margin in the House. They're going to lose both in two years. I think they know it. And that's why they're talking about coups and everything. And they have a good chance of losing the president. That's what worries them. This, if you, you look at a map of the United States and you see two blue strands on the coast and then one around Austin and one around the Great Lakes. And that represents about 48% of the population. And then the entire country is red in between. 90% of the geography and about 51 or 52% of the people. That's what they're worried about. And the problem they have is that where things are made, oil, food, transportation, factories, they don't control any of that. And so what we're seeing now is 2 million people in the last two years have left blue enclaves, Illinois, California, Massachusetts, New York, and gone to places of the old Confederacy. You know, I can't believe it, but they're going to Tennessee, they're going to Texas, or they're going up to Wyoming or Montana or Utah, etc. So they're afraid that their blue state paradigm of high taxes, big government, appeasement of criminal, that homelessness, that doesn't work for liberals. And so they're in crisis right now, and they're afraid they're losing the majority of people, and they don't know how to stop it. And what I meant was, any sane person would look, go into Joe Biden's office and say, you've got to close the border, finish the wall, this is killing us. Or you can't keep printing $2 trillion and paying people to stay home, this is killing us. Or you've got to restore deterrence abroad, or, or our allies are going to become Finland-like countries, they'll have no choice. But they're not going to do that, they, they double down. I'm glad you mentioned the sort of geography of America, the demography of how on both coasts you've got these very strong sort of Democrat you know, states. And as you say, many people are going from the blue states to the red states. What do you think of this idea of a secessionist movement within the Republican Party who feel that the Democrats are so anathema to everything America stands for and the fact that they control every major institution means that there's no option left than to create your own country of just red states. And I'm going to quote from a radio host called Jesse Kelly, and I want you to respond. He wrote that there is simply no common ground with the left anymore. We are now a couple screaming at each other all night, every night, as the kids hide in their room. We cannot come together, but we do not have to be like this. The history of the world is nations breaking up and redrawing their borders. If we want to avoid this political divide turning into a deadly one, we should do likewise. We did that once, and that didn't work out very well. And the problem is that when I mention red and blue, it's true, but what happens to somebody like me in a blue state, California? And what I meant is that California's got 40 million people, and we've got about 15 million that are conservative. And if you go to the geography of California and you go north of San Francisco, which is larger than most states up to the Oregon border or along the Sierra Nevada foothills or the Great Central Valley of 400 miles or the Inland Empire, the people who live there are more conservative than people in Utah. I live in Fresno County. I can tell you that people here are all armed. Uh, they don't go to San Francisco. 
they don't trust their kids going to the coastal universities. They don't like people from the coast, but they're in California. And, and there are places of blue enclaves like Austin in the middle of Texas. So it's not so easy. But more importantly, I think conservatives, and why I disagree with the radio host is, I think that we're starting to win. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And now, and I'm talking from an area that's 95% Mexican-American. This was ground zero of illegal immigration. Donald Trump got 45% of the Latino vote here, and Mexican-American males, 52% percent because abortion on demand, transgenderism in the schools and anathema for people in that community. They like to be militarily strong. They're coming into the middle and upper middle classes. They're angry at the price of energy. They're terribly angry at the taxes considered what they get in exchange. They don't want open borders. I've talked to so many people and they say, my mom's on dialysis. Why would I want a bunch of people from Oaxaca to come here and crowd these services? And so they're starting to lose their constituencies. They're losing suburban voters who are now upset about crime. They're losing minorities who feel that they're being talked down to by elite white bicoastal professionals and academics whose culture they, they abhor. So I would rather work at getting a majority of Americans, and I think it's happening. And Donald Trump sort of kicked in this door, and then people found out you could appeal to the deplorables, you could get tough on China, you could close the borders, you really didn't need optional military engagements when you were facing existential enemies like China. And so that opened a lot of avenues, and we have more and more Republican and conservative candidates have kind of refuted the old John McCain, Romney, we have to open the door a border or Hispanics won't like us. We've got to get China into the world community by giving them more concessions. Let's write off the assembly manufacturing. We don't do that here in America anymore. So I think there's a, a good opportunity 
in this midterms to see a correction of a, of a magnitude we saw in 2010 or 1994, maybe 50 to 70 seats. And I think we could win back the Senate. And at that point, Joe Biden will be, if he's still in office, will be relegated to just an executive order president barking at the moon because he doesn't have the charisma or the cognitive ability at this point that Barack Obama did when he lost both houses of Congress. Does it matter when you vote in Republicans? Because many would argue that the left's domination of big tech, of the media, of almost, as I mentioned earlier, every institution from the FBI downwards, means that simply when you elect these politicians, they can actually impact very little. And the other argument that some Trump supporters would say as well is that even when you're electing certain Republicans, they simply support the same system that they believe to be working, these kind of Bush-era Republicans. So do you think that there's any point in, in winning these elections in any case? There has to be a point, but you're, you've sort of outlined exactly what I wrote in the book, The Dying Citizen, in the chapter of The Unelected. I said we have 2 million people in the federal workforce and 40% of Americans work for some form of government. And we have these unelected people, an Anthony Fauci, a Mark Milley, a Lois Lerner at the IRS, uh, a James Clapper, an Andrew McCabe, a James Comey. And they, they exercise judicial, executive, and legislative power on their own. And administrations and senators come and go, but they stay. And they have to be held accountable. And they lie under oath. We know that Clapper did. We knew that Comey feigned under oath 245 times he couldn't remember. Robert Mueller didn't know what the Steele dossier was, apparently, even though it was at the center of his investigation, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have to hold those people accountable. And your other point is, is valid that when you have the traditional blue blood, silk stocking Republican wing that's in that New York, Washington nexus, they're so integrated with the left whether they're Supreme Court judges or whether they're senior senators or even administrations that they feel that they have more in common culturally and socially with their counterparts than they do with their ideological allies, supposedly in the Midwest or something. So a lot of us have talked about how do you stop that? And one of them is, I think it would be, we, it seems simple, but you can break up Washington. I don't know why the FBI is in Washington. It should be in Kansas City. I don't know why the Department of Agriculture is in Washington. It should be in Fresno or Texas somewhere. And if you broke up a lot of those nexuses, especially in the age of electronic communications like Skype or Zoom, it would really help. And that you got, I think we also really need to look at antitrust legislation, anti-monopoly legislation. When you have Google running 90% of the searches or social media is controlled by Twitter and Facebook. So there's things that we can do if we had a Republican party that's not compromised. And for all practical purposes, let's be frank, if you are a Republican today and you want to run for Congress and you want to run for the Senate almost anywhere, you're not going to be able to run on a John McCain, Mitt Romney agenda. And the people who tried it, like Liz Cheney, they're going to lose. She's going to lose in Wyoming, and she's from an ancient family there that has enormous influence and power and a network of supporters, and she's got a huge nationwide fundraising apparatus, and she's going to lose. And so I think that the Republican Party finally is shedding this image that it's a bunch of white guys on the golf course putting around and talking about capital gains and privatizing Social Security. And it's a party of the middle class 
in contrast to the Democratic Party that despises the white working class, we know, but really the entire white uh, working class, and is a party of very, very wealthy people, the Bill Gates, the Warren Buffetts, the Zuckerbergs, the Bloombergs, and then the subsidized lower middle class and poor. And so they don't care about the middle class. They feel they lack the romance of the poor, and they don't have the culture or the sophistication of the wealthy. And they make fun of them on 360 degrees, 24-7. Uh, you know, these are the deplorables. I'm quoting Biden and Obama and, and Hillary. These are irredeemable, de uh, deplorable. And John McCain called them the crazies. So they have a whole language of disparagement for them. It's fascinating. You're seeing these exact same trends in the United Kingdom where yes. more uh, working-class voters are now voting for the Conservatives by a huge margin than voting for the Labour Party for all the same reasons. I'm curious as well, I just find their rhetoric so fascinating, the, those on the left. When they talk about things like, we live in an era of white supremacy, we need to end all racism, these seem to be very lofty goals. But where does this sort of end? When, when is white supremacy ended? When is racism ended? Where does this revolution It stop? never ends for them. Well, this is my question. What is their aim? I don't really understand. I think part of it is psychological in two way, ways, and this is kind of a, a tired trope, but I do think there's something to it, that when somebody le loses any sense of transcendence, that you don't believe that there's something after this world or there's powers in this world that cannot be calibrated, that require faith, then you find you have an inner human need for that. And for the left that are atheist and agnostic, their religion is getting in your face and forcing you to be a better person, whether that's on the climate or race. And that explains the frenzy. The other thing is more, I'm not a Freudian or a Jungian, but there is something to the idea that we have created, if you go to Palo Alto, California, where I work, or you go up to Woodside or Atherton or Hillsdale or the Upper West Side of New York or suburbs of Cambridge, Massachusetts or Austin, Texas, the bluest of the blue places, they're almost all, Portland, the most radical city of the United States is 96% white. So what I'm getting at is a lot of these very wealthy white people feel more comfortable with white people. And they feel terrible that they feel more comfortable. So in the abstract, they hunt out supremacy and racism and white privilege. But in the concrete, it never affects where their kids go to school, who they have over for dinner, who they associate, with the minor exception that a very elite level of minorities who they feel comfortable with, but they do not want to be with a middle class, white or non-white, and most of the non-white are middle class. So they create this con constructed caring, and I, I've seen it so much on the Stanford campus where I see these white kids, and if they really believed in helping minorities, they'd come down here to Fresno or Bakersfield and tutor, or they would send their kids to Cal State Fresno or Cal State Turlock. But when you look at how they live, they're the most pretentious, envious, status-conscious people in the world. And they don't want to be around anybody but themselves, and they feel terrible about it. Just look at the luminaries of the current Democratic Party. Nancy Pelosi lives in a huge home in San Francisco in a gated Napa Valley Palazzo. Gated. Mark Zuckerberg has a 50,000-square-foot home on Hawaii with a wall around They hate walls. They say they don't work. Barbara Streisand, all of these people down on the PCH in Malibu, same thing. So when you look at the schools they, they worship and 
It's very funny. They're all talking about we need not just proportional representation for college admissions, but what they call now things like equity admission or repertory admission. So if you're African-American, you're not going to be let in regardless of your credentials at 12% of the incoming Yale or Harvard or Stanford class, but maybe 15 or 18. But when you look at the numbers, and the same is true for Latinos, there's only one rubric you can cut, and that's white males because you're 55% women anyway, and you're getting white males that are 33% of the population down to about 15 and who does that hit if they're not a legacy and you're not a multimillionaire to give the money to buy your way in? It hits the children of the white professional classes. And so what are they doing right now? And I can attest this from firsthand knowledge. They are calling up the admissions office. They are calling up a dean. They're calling up a pro. My kid didn't get into Stanford or Harvard. What am I going to do? This is terrible. I didn't think diversity would do this to me. Or they're getting carjacked in Portland. Or somebody took their catalytic converter in Minneapolis. Or they can't go to downtown Seattle. I didn't think that this was going to happen to me. Or the Soros DA that they voted for let out somebody that just broke into their home. And so that's, this was all, I don't want to say it was a game, but this was sort of revolutionary chic. And now the Frankenstein monster they created is going after them and uh, they don't like it. So they project all of these uh, pathologies onto other people because they suffer them themselves. Is America a sort of victim of its own success after the Cold War when you won that war? The Soviet Union collapsed, America, people were talking about the end of history. As you mentioned quite rightly, Christianity, religion has declined mostly in, in Western countries as we become richer. So people feel that there's no ideological enemy and that there's no God anymore that they can look to as a sort of purpose. So this kind of meaning in their life is having to be filled with very odd radical ideologies. I think that's pretty much sums it up. That, and that's was sort of the warning at the very beginning. There was a reason that Aristotle and Plato and many of the Stoics, well, we would call them conservative or right-wing, or maybe the Roman nihilist, uh, Suetonius, Petronius, Tacitus, were kind of that way. To, and they all had a common... And I don't want to get into the German nihilists, because I, I don't really approve of them, I don't like them, but Hegel and Nietzsche and Spengler, they all had a similar theme, that when you combine market capitalism or free markets with constitutional government, it puts an enormous onus on the citizen to not do what he's materially and legally able to do. And that what the Romans call luxus or decadence. And so if you don't have a religious concept or religious community or family support network or small town shame culture, and you've got all this money and all this freedom, human nature being what it is, there's no breaks on your appetites. So here we are when the very economic fabric, the agricultural fabric, the energy fabric, the foreign policy are all stressed out. But when you look at the upper middle classes and the wealthy, what are they doing? And you look at the popular culture magazines and blogs, they're enjoying a level of indulgence. It's, it's just, you know, whether it's John Kerry flying all over the world in his private jet to combat climate change or, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's 
latest acquisition or Bill Gates buying 200,000 acres. It reminds me of Tromalchio and Petronius the Satyricon. So that was always a, a fear of what this West... And the, when you mentioned the UK, there was no reason why it would be different than ours or we'd be different than the UK because you have the same ingredients at work. A very sophisticated and stable form of government and a free market, even under your socialism, a free market economy, and a lot of people who are getting very wealthy and they're very free and they don't believe in anything more than themselves, and they're indulgent, and they're at war with less well-off people in the interior and the hinterland that are more traditional, and they despise those people. It doesn't go the other way. The, the traditionalist in the West doesn't really hate this coastal uh, globalist elite. They just feel that they're misled and they don't want to be around them. That elite hates the interior and wakes up every morning saying, what did I do to curb those people? And then they go to bed saying, I don't do enough. So it's, it's, they're incessant. I'm glad you mentioned the UK because obviously I live here and I study UK politics all the time. And what's fascinating is that in 2016 we had a similar political revolution to the United States. We had this Brexit referendum and in many ways that opened the door for a political and economic revolution. Obviously we're leaving this huge trading block which uh, had so much power over our laws and over our lives. And yet, it doesn't seem to me that in Britain we've had the same kind of culture war or same kind of political revolution as we've had in the United States. And in particular, conservatives here seem to be far more happy with the situation in which institutions are run by our ideological opponents than in America. And I'm just curious to know what we could learn from conservatives in the United States. And, you know, for example, there's some great grassroots movements within education. You saw Glenn Youngkin's election recently in Virginia and parents who are going to school boards and, and arguing against so-called woke ideologies being taught to their uh, kids. I'm really, really interested in what British conservatives can learn from uh, Americans in how to combat this stuff. I think one of the things that conservatives learned, and they didn't, not that they're particularly original, but they are brave and they're tra they are traditional. And they've learned that the new coastal leftist elite is not your old Democrat, your Hubert Humphrey or even your Bill Clinton, but they're elitist and they're revolutionaries and they don't like the middle class. So what conservatives have been doing is, when you look at those tapes of the Virginia parents, the first thing that strikes you is there's an Afghan refugee yelling at the school board. There's an Iranian refugee. There's a Taiwanese American. The, so the conservative movement said, we're in the middle class now and we can, we're the majority and we want anybody to come in here to attack these people who are ruining our country. And we don't have to have exactly the same agendas. But if you're Mexican American and you don't want your daughter in Salinas to be told that she's really a man from this spoiled brat white teacher that you know came out of uh, UC Santa Cruz then join us and if you're living in the inner city and you're an African-American and and you're armed to protect your family from nightly shootings you have a right to be armed that's your constitutional protection so conservatives found a populist message that transcended race and replaced it with a class conscience it's a little bit more difficult in Britain because 
your class consciousness was always more extreme in the sense that we were more upwardly more mobile and you had a kind of a class system so you had people who were very resentful it was that old metaphor in the united states if you saw a cadillac in the 1960s you went over to the guy and goes how much did it cost how could i get one great car if you saw one in britain you wanted to kick it and so it's it's harder in britain but i think british conservatives could try to enlist people that the left through their open door policy thought would be permanent constituents and they actually come from traditional cultures some of them that can be inclusive and included and then when that happens you'll be surprised how quickly a lot of the people on the left will not want open borders i noticed that we had about 80,000 cubans that wanted to come here and the biden administration stopped that on day 1 and they do not want anybody coming in the united states from venezuela or cuba they just do not want it and they they're open about it they want people from you know the caribbean or from not from northern mexico from southern mexico indigenous people who might be good revolutionary fodder for them the woke movement according to some is simply a fad they argue that their ideas are fundamentally flawed and unsustainable they go against human nature do you think that it will simply wash away over the next few years in a very uh, quick way like mccarthyism did or is wokeism here to stay this because an idea is contrary to human nature bolshevism was contrary to human nature and that's what the i mean the russian aristocracy said you know we can kind of hang around with kerensky a little bit or we can give a nod to lenin but we're here to stay and it's going to pass and it didn't even though they had no support among the people so bad ideas that have minority support can be very quickly institutionalized if they use the necessary means to get there so this is a revolutionary neo marxist socialist movement jacobin movement they have no public support that's true it's contrary to human nature but that does not mean they will not be successful in implementing it in the schools and the popular culture if they're not challenged once they're challenged and once you're bold about it and say you know you can cancel me you can do anything you want it has no effect on me and people start doing that it will collapse i i'm kind of a pessimist about human nature i think these things i grew up you know as a kid during the 60s and saw that about every 20 years on the west there's sort of this fad you know these uh, this hysteria say them which trial mccarthy me too black lives matter where they start out with maybe an understandable worry and then they go completely crazy in a mass uh, consensual society and then the traditionals have to put it down and it's kind of like mowing the lawn you you can't let it go out so i don't think the wokeness is going to stay but it could stay if people don't resist it everybody that that you talk to now in the united states has had it with it so a lot of these movements keep going and keep going and keep going as like a car that ran out of gas and you put it in neutral on a coast and so it's coasting now but the ingredients black lives matter is totally discredited the founder of it miss quellars has got her fourth home she moved to white the pocon canyon first thing she built was a $35,000 security fence blm came out and said this is racist jesse smollett is innocent this was a real attack i mean they've completely gone jumped the shark as we say and they're they're discredited and me too died when 
Tara Reid came out of the woodwork and said, this man who's going to be president sexually assaulted me, and here's a witness. And all the people that said women must be believed said, not this woman. He's the only guy we got. So that's what will happen. But we, as traditionalists, have a duty to our forebearers and our children to stop this because it will do a lot of damage, and it has done a lot of damage. And I have no patience with a lot of people on the conservative side, the never-Trump right, who feel that they can continually harp on January 6th or Donald Trump said this or that. You know, it's almost like there's a little bit of smoke in the kitchen and I'm going to get out of the house when the whole house is on fire and they don't really care about that. And they, they gave us Joe Biden in, in a close election. So this idea that we're all going to play by the Marcus of Queensbury rules and if you don't, then your whole side is discredited. That's nice in normal times, but right now... We have an existential threat, and everybody, according to their station, has to speak out against it. And if you don't do that, then you're aiding and abetting what will be a revolutionary takeover of the Western world. Victor Davis Hansen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.